Over the next several weeks, um, what I want to do is look with you at what I see are some as being some key stories and passages in the Bible. And so we're not going to be in any one particular book during this, uh, but we're going to look at a variety of different passages. And we're going to start with this passage in Isaiah chapter 6 that you can find in your worship bulletin on page 12. Read that together in a moment. But see, Isaiah 6, it's important um, for one reason, because in order for you to understand any of the message of Isaiah, which is a huge prophecy in the Bible, um, and some of the clearest, containing some of the clearest scripture passages in all the Bible about the meaning of Jesus and his life and his death, um, in order for you to understand the message of Isaiah, you have to understand the man Isaiah. Um, See, the book of Isaiah is all about what it means to meet and live before the righteous and gracious King of Kings. Um, And Isaiah 6 is the story of when Isaiah met the King of Kings. And this experience that he tells us about, it transformed him. It reshaped everything about his life. It reoriented his whole life and his message. Let me give you just an example of what I mean. In this vision that we're about to read, Isaiah heard these angelic beings, these seraphim. He heard them calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now, here's the question. Do you think meeting the holy, holy, holy king changed Isaiah? Isaiah uses the word holy to describe God more than all of the other books in the Old Testament combined. He refers to God as the Holy One of Israel 25 times in his book compared to seven times in the rest of the entire Old Testament. It meant something to him. This meeting changed him and reshaped him. And so we ask, so what? And, which is a fair question. Um, and here's what I would put before you this morning. If you, like Isaiah, really meet the King of Kings you should expect that it would transform and reshape and reorient your whole life too, because that's what happens when you meet the King of Kings. So let's read this story together in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. It's God's holy and inerrant word. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go before him now and ask for his help and understanding. Gracious Father, we ask for your mercy now, and we ask for your grace to be poured out that we might understand your word and that it might be applied to our lives corporately um, and individually. Um, You know every one of us in this room, and none of us, even those of us who are surprised to find ourselves in a church this morning, none of us is here by accident, but by your appointment. And we understand that we come into this place and there are hearts that are heavy, the cares of this life. There are hearts that are burdened with sorrows. People are suffering. There are other people who come this morning and never remember a time being more close to you than they are right now. There are those who have doubts and are skeptical of the truth of everything we just read. And Father, we pray that you would deal with us all individually, that you would even remind us this morning that despite what we're facing right now, deep down, we're really all the same because we are all far more broken than we could ever imagine. And we all need the hope of the gospel. We need to be reminded that it can be true that we can be both far more broken than we could have ever imagined, but also far more loved and far more accepted, far more free, far more approved of than we ever dare dream possible because of what Jesus has done for us. Help us to see this good news. Meet with us and change us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Some of you have seen this TV show before, uh, Undercover Boss. I've caught it a a couple of times, but it's where the CEO of a big company, he goes undercover and he mingles and he works with his employees as kind of a regular employee. And hidden cameras are there and they capture all of these interactions that this CEO has with uh, his employees. But at the end of the show, there's this 
big reveal when these employees finally meet the CEO, but this time without his disguise. Um, And in that moment, the employees come into his office and it's, it's apparent that they are just visibly shaken um, in his presence. They're uncomfortable. They're overwhelmed. They're trying to replay the tape in their heads. Like, what did I actually say to this guy, right? Um, and all of a sudden, they're just overwhelmed with whose presence they're in. And in that moment, the weight of that CEO's presence um, just takes their breath away, as it were. And that, I think, is a dim shadow of what happens in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah was hit with the full weight of God's presence. The whole earth, the seraphim saying, is full of his glory. The Hebrew word for glory, it means weight. It means heaviness. It means solidity right? A heaviness or a weightiness of importance. Isaiah was in the office of the CEO of CEOs, right? In the throne room of the king of kings, and the weight he experienced changed him, right? Nothing can be the same for him anymore. He's saying, my whole life now needs to be changed, be reshaped and reoriented. And listen, some of you have not met the king of kings yet, And some of you have grown cold, and you need to be reminded that this is exactly what happens when you meet the King of Kings. Your life gets transformed and reshaped and reoriented. So I want to try to show you this in four simple points this morning. Um, So I can count past three. Um, Here are the four points. The beauty of God, the corruption of self, the wonder of grace… And finally, the freedom of God's mission. I'll give them to you as we go along, but just one more time up front. The beauty of God, the corruption of self, the wonder of grace, and the freedom of God's mission. All right, first, the beauty of God. Listen to me, not the might of God, not the wisdom of God, not the power of God, not the majesty of God, not the sovereignty of God. All those things are in this passage and in this story, but front and center is the beauty of God. God was seated on his throne, high and lifted up. His robe was filling the temple, and there's a certain weight to this scene. I mean, the foundation of the thresholds of the temple were shaking, and the temple was filled with smoke. But these seraphim, these angelic beings, they were singing. And the verbs that are used there in the Hebrew tell us that they are continuously singing about God's holiness. They could not get enough of it. And God's, what God's holiness is, it is, is his, it's his supreme otherness, his supreme uniqueness, the absolute and amazing perfection of all his attributes. Holy, see, holiness is a superlative, right? greatest, largest, perfectest, if that was a word. Um, right? In the Hebrew language, to emphasize something, you, you use repetition. And so instead of writing in the Hebrew that something is very big or biggest, in the Hebrew you would write, that is big, big, right? Or if you wanted to say something is very dark, you would say dark, dark.
only here in the Bible is a word ever tripled in its repetition. One scholar writes that God's holiness is not just a superlative. It's a super superlative. And at the heart of this scene is God's supreme uniqueness. The absolute and perfect beauty of all his attributes. And the seraphim, they cannot get enough of it. They're continuously singing about it, and they're staying in his presence. But they're also shielding their eyes from a direct look at him. His holiness is that beautiful. I came across a brief little poem, an unknown author who wrote, It breaks my heart to see so much beauty. I can't hope to explain what that's like for me. I wish you could see through my eyes of blue. If you could, I bet your heart would break too. I want you to think about that just for a moment. It's not a particularly great poem or anything, but think about it. A beauty that is so beautiful that it could split your heart in two, that it could break the coldness of your heart. You probably never heard of that poem, but the one on the front of, in, in the front of your bulletin is at least familiar to your children um, because it comes from Disney's Frozen. Right? Cut through the heart, cold and clear. Strike for love and strike for fear. See the beauty, sharp and sheer. Split the ice apart and break the frozen heart. A few verses later, cut through the heart, cold and clear. Strike for love and strike for fear. There's beauty and there's danger here. Can I tell you something? This really is the deepest desire of your heart, to be in the presence of a beauty that is so beautiful, it would change you. It would break your heart. It would crack through the iciness of your heart. To encounter the unveiled beauty of God would be to know that nothing in this life is worth having if you cannot have Him forever. See, we often fool ourselves into thinking that we want God when what we really want is His gifts. What we really want often is to use Him for our own ends. You know what I mean? We want God's good gifts his blessings to help me through this problem, to console me, to heal me, to comfort me, to answer my questions, to rescue me. And God's might and His power and His wisdom, right, and His grace, they all might be useful to you. But there is nothing useful about His holiness. It's just His supreme, super superlative beauty. Is this something that we, the church, or you individually see yourselves wanting just to be in the presence of his beauty for who he is. Johnny Cash prophetically sang, I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit. They say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. And I'm asking this question of you this morning. Do you long for the gifts of the king, but not the king of the kingdom? Isaiah saw seraphim enraptured with God's supreme beauty. At the heart of this scene is a beauty that is so deep, so real, and so perfect that if you saw it, it would break your heart in two. To meet the real God is to have your eyes open to realize that all other beauties, all other loves, all other desires 
pale in comparison to this. To meet the real God is to begin worshiping, worshiping Him, not just for what He does for you, but for who He is in Himself. All right, second, let's move on, and we'll step a little further into this question. What would it be like for you to meet the King of Kings? Uh, what would it be like for you to encounter the unveiled beauty of God? The frozen song that I just mentioned is an echo of what Isaiah felt and experienced. There's beauty, and there's danger here. Right? This is the ultimate beauty that is my deepest desire in life. And it's also terrifying. Right? That's, what Isaiah, that's what happened to Isaiah, right? Verse 5, Woe is me, for I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. All of a sudden, in front of the beauty of God, Isaiah becomes painfully and terrifyingly aware that he wasn't fit to be in the presence of beauty like this. I mean, it's like the nightmare that maybe you had when you were a child where you're on the school bus and all of a sudden you realize that everyone's been staring at you and only too late do you realize it's because you forgot your clothes, right? You're naked. You don't have any clothes on and you're utterly and completely exposed before God's supreme beauty, before his perfect otherness. Isaiah saw himself as exposed and broken and terrified. To meet the King of Kings is to become deeply and painfully aware of your brokenness and your sin. You become aware of your unfitness, aware of your depravity in His presence, that you're through and through a sinner. Isaiah is often called the prince of prophets. Um, And you know why? Part of it has to do with uh, a lot of people think he came from a royal lineage. Um, But it's also because he's unmatched in his skill with language. There is a beauty and a simplicity and a vividness to Isaiah's use of language that is absolutely unparalleled by any other prophet. He's the prince of prophets. So when Isaiah admitted his fallenness and his brokenness and his sin, do you see that he went to the very thing that was his best attribute, his lips, his speech, He was saying, the best part of me, the thing that sets me apart from others, that makes me important, that makes me different, that makes me worthy, the thing that was my identity, the thing that was my righteousness, in the presence of ultimate beauty, my best and my beauty is dirty and unclean. And don't we do that? We run to our best attributes and say, this is what makes me better than those people, right? This is what sets me apart. This is what gives me an identity. I don't do this, and I don't do that, and look at what I've achieved, and look at my sincerity and my intentions. You know, the startling difference between Christianity and every other religion is that you don't just need to repent of your sin. Every religion, every major world religion involves some kind of repenting of sin, But Christianity that says that when you meet the real God, the King of Kings, you're going to realize that you need to repent of your righteousness too. Your righteousness, the things you look to for your identity, you're going to have to turn from that to the mercy and grace of God. When Isaiah said that he was lost or undone, he was saying in front of beauty like this, even my best means that I'm a 
I'm a walking dead man, right? I mean, he was the original walking dead, just not a zombie. Now, brace yourself for something a little bit graphic here. What we just said here about repenting of your righteousness, I think, is how Isaiah could come up with a metaphor like the one he used in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 5. There Isaiah said, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That polluted garment, that's a uh, PG-rated English translation. In the Hebrew, Isaiah was literally saying, our best things, our most righteous deeds, the things we count on for our identity, they are like used menstrual rags. How about that for simplicity and clarity and vividness and language? That's how corrupted Isaiah views the self. And it's offensive to us, isn't it? It's supposed to be offensive. That's the point of Isaiah's language. For most of us, it's not our sin that keeps us from God, but our merits and our righteousness and our damnable good deeds. Right? There's beauty and there's danger here. And I'm asking if you felt that before. I'm not talking about some self-induced shame here. I'm talking about objective reality, a realization that even your very best, on your best day, completely misses the mark. Can you turn from and repent from your own righteousness? Can you lay your deadly doing down at Jesus' feet, as the old hymn says? To really meet the King of Kings is to come to the end of all your illusions and to see the corruption of the self and flee from your righteousness to Jesus. Okay, third, the wonder of grace. It's the wonder of grace that really makes it possible for us to lay our deadly doing down at Jesus' feet um, and receive an unshakable identity. The reason I'm using the word wonder is this. Think about what Isaiah was experiencing and feeling at the end of verse 6. I mean, he was already scared, but then one of these seraphs left God's throne and flew straight towards Isaiah. And just so you know, the word seraph, it literally means burning one, right? An angelic being that looked like it was on fire was headed straight for Isaiah. And in his hand was a live coal, a burning coal, a coal on fire that was taken from the altar. Now stop here and think with me just for a moment so we can, we can get a sense of what Isaiah was feeling. Fire in the Old Testament was always a symbol of God's judgment. And the altar was a place of God's judgment. Alec Moitier, the scholar, writes, In the Old Testament, fire is not a cleansing agent, but it's symbo- but is symbolic of the wrath of God. So think about it. What happened when man fell into sin in the garden? A flaming, fiery sword of justice barred the way to the tree of life. At Mount Sinai, Moses trembled before the burning bush. At Mount Sinai, the mountain smoked and looked like it was on fire in front of the people of Israel, and they were warned not to come near it lest they die. In Leviticus chapter 10, fire came out and consumed Nadab and Abihu, for not worshiping God properly. Now stop and think, what was Isaiah experiencing and feeling at the end of verse 6? He had to have been terrified. 
It's over a being on fire, holding fire from the altar was headed right at him. But the wonder of grace, verse 7, and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And think about this. From the place of judgment, with the instrument of judgment, came grace. You know what? This scene is preparing us for a scene that would come centuries later. Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, when Jesus was crucified, we read this. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks split. Sound familiar? language, right? The thresholds of the temple were shaking when Isaiah's deliverance came from the altar. The temple shook when Jesus died upon the altar of the cross. It shook so violently that it tore this thick curtain from the top to the bottom. And do you remember what the role of that curtain in the temple was? It sealed off and it separated everyone from the inner court, which was called the holy of holies, the very presence of God and His unveiled beauty. Listen, from the place of judgment, with the instrument of judgment came the wonder of grace. Here's something else. When John wrote his gospel, we read it earlier in John chapter 12. This is what he wrote. Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about Him. To meet the real God and to encounter the real God is to be confronted with the matchless beauty, with the terrifying beauty of God, but also the gracious beauty of Jesus. To meet the real God is to know that in Jesus it is finished and your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. To be a Christian is to be continually surprised by the wonder of grace. It's to know that I deserved and deserve God's judgment. But from the place of judgment and with the instrument of judgment came wonderful grace in Jesus. To meet the King of Kings is to meet Jesus. All right, fourth and finally, we'll consider the freedom of mission. It's very tempting to skip the end of this passage uh, in verses 8 through 13 or 9 through 13, and lots of people do, um, because these are really hard verses. God says some very hard things here, but if we skip it, If you skip it and ignore it, you miss seeing how free Isaiah really became because of God's grace. John Oswald wrote, fire is frightening, yet fascinating. What it consumes, it leaves dark, but in the process makes light. When it comes to clay, you can grab it with your hands and you can mold it and shape it. You can take rock or you can take wood and you can chisel it or carve it and shape it to your design. You can even take water and put it in a container and give it shape. But the moment you reach out to take or to grab fire is the moment you realize it will not be shaped by you. You can't shape fire. Fire always shapes you. The fire, the grace that came from the altar shaped Isaiah. To experience the wonder of God's grace in Jesus is to be set free, not into inactivity, but into mission shaped and molded by God's grace. 
I'm going to give you, you these things pretty quickly, but the first thing I want you to see about the freedom of mission in, mission in this passage is Isaiah's availability. Look, grace made him available to God's leading and shaping. Who will go for us, God asked in verse 8. And notice that Isaiah just blurts out, here I am, send me. Before he heard the job description. Isaiah had found ultimate beauty. He found a settled and secure identity. Grace made him available. And so Isaiah just said, whatever. Whatever you ask of me. When you meet the king of kings, you stop trying to shape him into your image. And getting him to agree with all your political views and your social stances, your ethical standards, and the way you spend your money, and the way you use your body, and the way you use your time, you become free to obey not just the parts you like or understand. You become free to submit to the kingship of Jesus, whatever he asks of you. Second, I think we find in these closing verses Isaiah being set free to faithfulness. Right Here's the job description, basically. I'm going to paraphrase and summarize. God says to Isaiah, Isaiah, I need you to preach to these people, but the reality is that I am going to let you fail big time. You're a gifted, clear communicator, but they will never understand. They won't perceive. They won't get it. And when all of this starts dawning on Isaiah, of course he asked in verse 11, how long? (laughs) How long, O Lord? And God said, basically, your whole life. You won't see the fruit of your work and labor. God isn't calling Isaiah to success. He's not calling you and me to success. He's calling us to faithfulness. See, the image given in these latter verses are that the people are a forest, and God is going to come, and He is going to clear timber. He's going to cut them down and leave them a wasteland. Listen, what happens when you meet the real God? You stop trying to calculate cost and benefit of serving Him. What's the payoff? What will I get out of it? How will this further the goals that I have in my life? Will this interfere with my agendas? How will this or that feel? Will it be hard or easy? Instead, you find a freedom to be faithful no matter what he calls you to. Is the fire of grace shaping you like that, or are you trying to shape it? There was no personal fulfillment for Isaiah in what God called him to do. And I'm just going to paraphrase what another preacher's application was here, and then I'll explain. He said, instead of trying to shape the terms of your service, why don't you let serving Jesus shape your life? How does that work? Instead of working your serving around your plans or your agendas or your summer vacation, start doing the very opposite of that. And work your plans, your agendas, your hobbies, your vacations, the way you spend your money around your service. Take jobs that no one will applaud you for, right? That no one will pat you on the back for. Volunteer to serve in the nursery or hand out bulletins or come early so that you can welcome people and show people love and hospitality, Pitch in and help making coffee. Help make coffee in the morning. Someone does that every week, and they are never thanked. 
And I'm always the first one in line for that coffee, right? Stop giving God your leftover energy is what I'm saying. Whatever's left, and give Him the very best of your energy. Give financially to His kingdom until it alters your lifestyle, until you stop going out to eat at some of the places you go out to eat, until you change your vacations. That's what it means to be shaped by the fire and the wonder of grace. Stop trying to shape the terms of your giving and sacrifice and service. And I know how all this works. Some of us are feeling uncomfortable and we're thinking, is he talking to me? Yes, and I'm talking to me. This is all of us. God's grace sets us free for this kind of life. Okay, last thing. Isaiah was set free to live with hope. The last line of Isaiah chapter 6, after all the trees have been felled, is this. The holy seed is its stump or is in the stump. You could translate it. You want to hear something Isaiah learned in the midst of unsuccessful, unappreciated ministry? What he learned from being set free in the wonder of grace? It shows up all over the place in his writing which is why Alec Moitier writes these brief words. He says, typically, typically of Isaiah, hope is the unexpected fringe attached to the garment of doom. All of this doom, but the holy seed is in the stump. And that seed, that holy seed is Jesus. And he is your hope and he is my hope. Let me give you a just very simple, broad outline of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah's entire message is built around three portraits that he paints. In chapters 1 through 37, he paints a portrait of the king. In chapters 38 through 55, he paints a portrait of a suffering servant. In chapters 56 through 66, he paints a portrait of the anointed conqueror. And the wonder of it all is that all these three portraits are the same person. The holy seed, Jesus, king, servant, and conqueror. Together, in just a moment, we're going to come to this table. And listen, if you're a Christian, you're to come to this table, to this meal, to the Lord's Supper, and you're to know this, the holy seed came for you. And he will come again. The king came as a servant to take judgment. And this table reminds us of that. But it also reminds us that Jesus is alive. And one day, someday, he will drink with us again because he has conquered sin and death for us. And therefore, if you're a Christian, you should come to this table with joy in your heart. And if you're not a Christian and you know you're not, and you're not a member in good standing of a gospel-proclaiming church, then don't take this meal. We say this every week. Just wait. We want to take this meal with you as brothers and sisters, but wait and ask for God to meet you, for the King of kings to come and meet you and show you his beauty and show you your corruption and show you the wonder of his grace and set you free to serve him in this life. Listen, if you meet the King of kings, you should expect that your whole life will be changed and transformed and reoriented and reshaped. Is your life a testimony to that? Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this very day, this day that we have gathered to worship the King of Kings. 
And Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to see your beauty, to see our brokenness, to see the wonder of your grace. And Father, would you please set your people free, set us free to serve you, however you call us, make us available and faithful and to live this life with hope in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen.